December is no time to be sailing the North Atlantic, Oliver DeVoe thought to himself as he turned his back to the stinging wind and blew warm air onto his hands. Oliver was the first mate of the De Grata, a British ship that was on its way from New York to Gibraltar. Sailing had been smooth. They had a good wind at their backs and the weather was clear, although the sun overhead was doing little to fight off the chill. He was standing behind the ship's wheel when suddenly across the bow, a two-masted square rigger appeared over the horizon. The ship's course seemed unsteady and the vessel shifted aimlessly in the wind. It was under short canvas for such a brisk wind, which made it lean heavily to the starboard side. Who was steering the ship in such a haphazard way? Oliver wondered as he changed course to prevent sailing into the other ship's path. It lurched along at what was only about two knots, but Oliver couldn't chance a collision. As the two ships drew nearer to one another, he could see that two of the other vessel's sails were missing and that her lower fore topsail was hanging slackly at the corners. He wondered if she had been through a storm. He could see ropes hanging loosely from the masts, but could see no movement on board. He quickly sent one of the men to fetch the captain. DeGrada's captain, David Reed Morehouse, hurried up onto the deck from below. He climbed the steps to the stern and joined Oliver behind the wheel. The first mate quickly pointed out the damage that had been done to the other ship, and the captain raised his glass and looked closely at it. He could see no one at the helm. The ship looked like it was in trouble, and yet no distress signal had been raised. Run up the signal and hail the ship, he called out. One of the crewmen rigged a blue and yellow flag to a line and raised it so it could clearly be seen by the other ship. The flag was a maritime signal that essentially meant, hello, we wish to speak with you. But no one answered. Set a course to go alongside the ship. Captain Morehouse ordered Oliver and he turned the wheel so they could approach the ship at a safe distance. As they drew closer, Captain Morehouse finally recognized the other ship. It was Mary Celeste. Morehouse was shocked. He knew the captain of the ship, Benjamin Spooner Briggs, and in fact considered him a friend. The two men had eaten supper together less than a month before when their ships had been loading cargo at neighboring piers in New York. Mary Celeste had set sail for Genoa about 10 days before the De Grotta had left port. What was she doing out here, off course and drifting, and where was the crew? As the two ships drew closer to one another, they were finally within hailing range. Captain Morehouse raised a speaking trumpet to amplify his voice. Celeste, ho, can you hear me? He called out. There was no reply from the other ship. Aside from the creaking of wood and the rustle of canvas, the deck of the Mary Celeste remained silent. Captain Morehouse called again, but nothing stirred on the ship. He could see that Mary Celeste was on a starboard tack, but the jib sail was set to port. To an experienced sailor, this meant only one thing. The ship was out of control. For that to happen, it meant that the crew was either incapacitated or dead. The captain felt a moment of utter dread. If the crew had been killed, that meant his friend Benjamin was dead. And worse, his wife and daughter had been traveling with him. He needed to find out what was amiss on Mary Celeste. He turned to his first mate. Oliver, take two men with you and find out what's happening on that ship, Morehouse told him. I need to know if anyone is alive. 
Oliver chose two men from the crew when a boat was lowered into the sea. The three men cast off toward the silent ship. They rowed in silence toward Mary Celeste. As they neared it, Oliver, too, felt a sense of dread. Something was wrong here, he thought. He could feel it in his bones. They pulled up alongside the ship's hull and put away the oars. One of the crewmen tossed a line and hook up onto the deck, and after securing their boat, they used the line to climb aboard. What they found on Mary Celeste in December 1872 has remained a mystery ever since, a puzzle that still intrigues historians and sailors to this day. It has become, without question, the greatest nautical disappearance of all time. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our brand new season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America is a place that is filled with mystery and wonder. It's a place where bizarre happenings occur and where mysteries for which no rational explanation exists are commonplace. Those mysteries often include unexplained disappearances, just like the ones we'll be talking about this season. These are stories of people who have vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. Their stories are often bizarre, unexplainable, and sometimes impossible, but all of them, in the end, are terrifying. And that's for good reason. If the people you'll hear about in the season ahead so easily vanished without a trace, never to be seen again, then that means just about anyone can find themselves in the same predicament. They can vanish too. Maybe even you. This is an episode that just might make you reconsider going on that cruise you have planned. It's the one we call the ghost ship. Benjamin Spooner Briggs was not a superstitious man. He'd heard the stories about the troubled past of the ship on which he'd soon be sailing, but he dismissed the worries of other longtime sailors. The ship, once known as Amazon, had been constructed in 1860 with dubious financing that led to the ruin of those involved. Her first captain died just 48 hours after he was given the job. On her maiden voyage, she had rammed into a row of stakes that were set in the water to catch fish off the coast of Eastport, Maine. During the repairs, a fire broke out below decks. Soon after, while delivering lumber to London, Amazon collided with another ship in the Strait of Dover. The crew had to be rescued by the men from the other ship. In 1867, Amazon was carrying a load of coal and was blown onto a rocky shoreline in the North Atlantic. The crew survived the crash and left the ship stranded on the rocks. And it looked like the end of her because its owners couldn't afford to have it repaired. But a year later, it showed up in New York at public auction. It seemed so rickety that it drew few bidders. It finally sold for a fraction of what it was worth in 1860. The new owner, Richard Haynes, spent more than $9,000, which 
That's about 225 grand today on the ship, only to lose it a year later when he couldn't pay off the loans he'd taken out for her repairs. Creditors seized the ship and sold it at auction to J.H. Winchester and company. She was given a new captain and a new name, Mary Celeste. But Captain Briggs had little interest in legends and claims the ship was cursed. He was a practical New Englander, and in 20 years at sea, he'd heard it all. Mermaids, sea monsters, the Flying Dutchman. Yes, there were peculiar things at sea, but he was a confident, experienced man who could handle just about anything. Because again, he was not a superstitious man. Even after all the tragedies, his own family had suffered at the hands of the sea. Benjamin had been born in Wareham, Massachusetts on April 24, 1835, the third child and second son of Nathan and Sophia Briggs. His father had been a sea captain, and he raised his sons to follow in his footsteps, but not without cost. In 30 years, Benjamin lost two brothers, his only sister, and an uncle to the ocean, all in different incidents. Just two years earlier, his father had died in a freak accident struck by lightning inside his own home. If that didn't make you superstitious, well, I don't know what would, but not Benjamin Briggs. His fears weren't more grounded in reality. He was concerned about how his new command, a modest brigantine, a two-masted sailing ship, would ride in the water after a major overhaul. He worried about getting his cargo to its destination on time, and he worried about his wife and their beloved daughter traveling with him across the sea. He didn't believe in ghosts and curses. And yet on Saturday, October 19, 1872, Benjamin awoke with a feeling of utter dread. It took him nearly an hour to shake the stomach-churning feeling that he had in the pit of his stomach. It was the morning when he was going to return to the sea. He was leaving for New York and supervising the loading of his new ship for her transatlantic voyage. In a few weeks, he and his family and his crew would set out on the first leg of that trip that might eventually take them halfway around the world. He'd never sailed with these men before, nor on this ship, which was called Mary Celeste. When Benjamin arrived in New York and got his first look at his new ship, he was impressed. He'd been expecting a more modest vessel than what he'd found. The ship was sleek and dark with clean lines and a smooth hull. Mary Celeste had undergone extensive renovations in Nova Scotia. She was almost a new ship. Metal sheathing had been attached to the ship's underside to prevent barnacles from eating through the wooden hull. The copper gleamed in the water complimenting a deck so clean it nearly shined. The two masts, towering more than 75 feet above the deck, rocked gently in the wake of passing boats. Two cabins rose from the deck, the larger of which included quarters for the captain and first mate. The forward deckhouse included space for the galley and the rest of the crew. Mary Celeste's main hatch to the cargo hold lay just aft of the forward deckhouse, and the wheel was mounted near the stern. Much of the ship had been completely redesigned, and the renovations weren't just cosmetic. Besides enlarging the cabins, the size of the hold had been enlarged to allow for another 75 tons of cargo. The entire ship had been lengthened by four feet, and it cost more than twice as much as it took to build the ship originally. But the work had been done well, and Benjamin was feeling optimistic and looking forward to taking her out to sea. 
His only complaint was about one of the longboats that was tied to the deck to be used in case of emergency. It was in dilapidated condition, and Benjamin asked that it be replaced before the ship sailed. James Winchester, the ship's owner, promised to do so, but that longboat never arrived. When Mary Celeste left port, she had only that one lifeboat on board. Benjamin wasn't well acquainted with Winchester, but he did know his first mate quite well. Albert Richardson had sailed with Benjamin before, and he boasted to his wife that with Albert on board, they were in good hands. Albert was 28 years old, a Maine native, and had served for three years during the Civil War. He was a capable sailor and well-liked by the other men. Benjamin didn't know the rest of the crew. The second mate was Andrew Gilling, a 25-year-old New Yorker. The cook's name was Edward Head, a newlywed of 23, who left his wife, Emma, to stay alone at their home in Brooklyn until he returned. Four German men, ranging in age from 23 to 25, made up the rest of the crew. There isn't much information available about any of them, but their names were Arian Martens, Gottlieb Gustad, and brothers Volkert and Boz Lorenzen. They were to be paid $30 a month during the voyage. The men were quiet and showed signs of being veteran sailors. They'd packed lightly for the long trip, with the two brothers even sharing a single sea chest. Based on how quickly they loaded the cargo, Benjamin thought they seemed to be good workers. On Sunday, October 27th, Benjamin's wife Sarah and their daughter Sophie arrived in New York. They traveled there in style on board a steamer and then spent a week in Queens while Mary Celeste's cargo was loaded. Benjamin met his wife and daughter and saw that Sarah had packed for a long trip. In addition to two trunks of clothing and two hats for herself, she'd also brought along a melodeon, a kind of button accordion, a sewing machine, a case of coloring books, dolls, and toys to keep Sophie busy on the voyage, which was bound to be dull for the little girl. Benjamin was thrilled to see them and took them to the ship so they could get settled into their quarters. The captain spent the rest of the day with his daughter, joining her in playing with her dolls and then uh, banging on the keyboard of the melodeon after Sarah finished playing a cheerful tune. Sophie was noisy and filled with mischief, despite suffering from a cold. The sailors, apparently not worried about the superstitions concerning women on ships, were delighted by her antics. The toddler discovered the ship's cat in the cargo hold where it stayed to kill mice and adopted it as her own. She fell asleep early that night, tired from her day of play and lulled by the gentle rocking of the sea. While Sophie was thrilled with her new surroundings, her mother Sarah thought of it as just another creaky ship. And if there was anything worse than living on a ship at sea, it was staying on board when it was in port. The noise made by the men as they loaded the ship and the racket coming from the other piers quickly got on her nerves. But Sarah was a kind woman and had been married to Benjamin for more than a decade. She was a former preacher's daughter, an accomplished singer, and a no-nonsense wife. She was used to running the household while her husband was at sea. She handled the job gracefully and was only complaining now about the noise on the ship because she was in the big city and was not getting to see much of it. She was stuck on the ship with Sophie for days, and while Benjamin tried to keep her entertained, Sarah was bored. She finally got her trip into the city on Thursday, October 31st. It was Sophie's second birthday, and a day that Americans were finally starting to celebrate the Irish holiday of Halloween. 
But the reason for the trip was a surprise visit from Sarah's younger brother, Willie, and his wife, Emmy. They all hired a carriage to take them to Central Park, where they spent the day and stretched their legs in preparation for the voyage ahead. On Saturday night, November 2nd, the crew finished loading Mary Celeste. In all, there were 1,701 barrels marked alcohol in the hold, and they were not packed in too tightly, only filling about half the space available. Even so, it was an expensive load. The freight was worth around $36,000, much more than the value of the ship. Atlantic Mutual, a shipping insurance agency, held the policy on the cargo. They protected the company shipping the alcohol in case the ship was lost or the barrels broke in a rough crossing, which was always a possibility. In 20 years of hauling freight, Benjamin had never carried alcohol before. It would have been natural for him to be nervous about it. Because it was so flammable, alcohol was, at the time, along with coal and hay, one of the three most dangerous cargoes for a ship to carry. To make matters worse, it wasn't even the distilled spirits kind of alcohol. It was the crude kind of industrial alcohol that not even sailors would drink. Benjamin ran a dry ship. He didn't allow his crews to bring liquor on board. It was a rule he had inherited from his father and one that was copied by many of the ship's captains who knew him. It became a fairly standard part of shipping contracts, even though it wasn't, as you might imagine, very popular among the sailors. But anyone who shipped out with Benjamin Briggs knew they would not be getting drunk and rowdy at sea. On Monday, Benjamin visited James Winchester's office and signed the bills of lading for the voyage, then visited the New York's Custom House to complete the necessary paperwork for Mary Celeste's voyage. After, he mailed letters, ran some last-minute errands, and then had supper with his friend David Morehouse. The men had known one another for years. Morehouse was a great bear of a man from Nova Scotia who had traveled all over the world. They dined at the Astor House, the Grand Hotel on Broadway. Both men would soon end up in Italy, they realized, and parted that night with plans to meet up on the other side. Finally, on November 5, 1872, while people around the country were going to the polls to re-elect President Ulysses S. Grant, the crew of the Mary Celeste cast off the mooring lines and pushed away from the pier. Rain clouds had darkened the morning sky, but Benjamin was ready to depart. He ordered first mate Richardson to have the crew unfurl the sails and make for the channel. But luck was already against them. It began raining so hard they were unable to even see the channel. Mary Celeste dropped anchor off Staten Island where she stayed for two days until better weather arrived. Now they were finally on their way. As the ship was steered back into the harbor, the German sailors climbed into the riggings to unfurl the rest of the foresails. After two days of foul weather, they had a bright morning with fair wind. They needed all the canvas they could fly to make up for lost time. Benjamin Briggs was a man who liked to be on time. From the harbor, the dark silhouette of Mary Celeste grew smaller and smaller until it finally vanished over the horizon.
When DeGrotta first made Oliver DeVoe and the other crewmen boarded Mary Celeste on December 4th, 1872, they couldn't shake the eerie feeling that came over them. The deck was empty. No crew member came forward to meet them. They shouted, but no one answered. The wheel stood unattended, spinning idly as the waves slapped at the rudder. The only sound aboard the ship was the groan of wood and rope. The silence was unnerving. They searched the ship from stem to stern, but there was no one on board. The vessel was absolutely deserted, but if the crew had abandoned her, they'd left everything behind. The hull, masts, and the remaining sails of Mary Celeste were all sound. The cargo, those hundreds of barrels of crude alcohol, was all intact, except for one barrel, which had been opened. There was plenty of food and water. Sea chests and clothing lay dry and undisturbed. In the galley, a meal was being prepared and still hung over a now-dead fire. In the captain's quarters, the bed was unmade. A child's doll lay on the floor. The table had been set for breakfast and then abandoned. There was porridge on one of the plates and the remains of eggs on another. Next to one plate was an open bottle of cough medicine with a cork and a spoon lying beside it. Sophie, you might recall, had come down with a cold. In the crew cabin, the skylight stood wide open and rain and seawater had soaked the bedding and clothing and formed pools of water on the floor. The ship itself was seaworthy and most things were in their proper place. It looked as though the entire crew had suddenly winked out of existence. Whatever had occurred, Oliver realized had taken place a short time before. None of the food had rotted and nothing metal had rusted in the sea air. There just didn't seem to be anything missing. Money and valuables had been left behind. The only things that were gone were the ship's chronometer and a lifeboat. The spot where the boat had been lashed to the main hatch was now empty. A piece of the ship's railing parallel to the spot where the boat had been was missing. Oliver assumed it had been removed so the boat could be launched. The officers and crew, it seemed, left the ship in a single lifeboat and must have done so in a hurry. Not only had they left behind their personal belongings, including their pipes and tobacco, which most sailors did not abandon unless in fear of death, but the ship had a disturbed look about it that suggested maybe violence. Rope and canvas were scattered about on the deck. The ship's compass had been smashed into pieces. In one cabin, they found a cutlass that was smeared with what could have been blood. They found similar stains on the starboard deck rail, near a cut that looked as though it had been made by an axe. On each side of the ship's bow were strips of wood that had been cut away from the deck. The strips were six feet long, but why they'd been cut was anyone's guess. The windows in the captain's cabin had been boarded up with canvas and heavy planks. Had the crew abandoned ship in fear of an attack or some other great calamity? There was no way for Oliver to say. According to records, there were seven crew members on Mary Celeste, plus Captain Briggs, his wife, and his daughter. All of them could have fit into a single lifeboat, but it would have been tight. Oliver checked the ship's log and found the last entry was dated for November 24th, which was 10 days earlier. At that point, Mary Celeste was passing north of St. Mary's Island in the Azores, which was more than 700 
miles away. If she'd been abandoned after the entry, then the ship had sailed itself unmanned and unsteered for more than a week and a half. Now, such a feat seemed impossible. Oliver believed that someone had to have been on the ship for at least several days after the final log entry, but who it had been? And where had everyone gone? Were they stricken with disease, madness, or something far sinister? The first mate returned to De Grotta and made his report to Captain Morehouse. Although saddened by the disappearance of his friend and his family, Morehouse saw an opportunity. There was money to be made. He ordered Oliver to return to Mary Celeste with two crewmen and then follow De Grotta to Gibraltar. According to the rules of the sea, they could claim Mary Celeste as salvage, which would bring them a sizable reward. Both ships arrived in Gibraltar one week later. Instead of salvage money, though, Captain Morehouse was met with an official order from the British Admiralty's office to seize Mary Celeste for an immediate investigation. But that investigation revealed little more than theories about what had happened to the ship's captain and crew. The sailors from De Grotta blamed the weather. Oliver DeVoe believed that a storm had struck the ship, basing this on the slight damage that had been done to the sails and rigging and on the several feet of water that was found in the hold. He suggested that the captain had ordered the ship to be abandoned because of the sounding rod that he found on the deck. A sounding rod was a piece of iron used to ascertain the depth of water in a ship's hold. He surmised that Captain Briggs might have abandoned the ship after a sounding that because of a malfunction of the pumps or some other mishap had given the false impression that the vessel was rapidly taken on water. While never publicly critical of the crew, Oliver's theory didn't take into account the experience and knowledge of Captain Briggs. There was some slight weather damage to the ship, but it was nothing serious, as any sailor, including Oliver DeVoe, should have known. The damage was minor for a ship that had been left abandoned for more than a week. Even if Mary Celeste had been in the same condition that it was found by the Degrada, that alone would not have scared them off. For a sailor like Benjamin Briggs to have loaded his wife, little daughter, and crew into a small skiff on open water, conditions would have had to have been extreme. A battered, leaky ship was definitely better than a dilapidated lifeboat any day. When Captain Briggs left Mary Celeste, she was seaworthy. All the minor damage to the ship had occurred while it was drifting through the North Atlantic. So the Admiral Court looked for other answers, soon considering that the abandonment might have been a plot by the crew to steal the cargo or simply murder the captain. And that's how mutiny got added to the story. In the 19th century, mutiny on sailing ships was rare, but not unheard of. There were dozens of public cases that had come to light, dating back many years, but it seems the suggestion of mutiny on Mary Celeste was more about selling newspapers than anything else. Even so, the Admiralty Court believed they'd found the solution. The crew had murdered the captain and his family and then escaped in the lifeboat. That's what they said not taking into fact that it was in the middle of the North Atlantic, leaving money, valuables, and all their personal belongings behind. So it was very unlikely. The emigrant sailors under Benjamin's command had no motive for such a risky, violent act, and neither did the others, which included the cook, a young newlywed, and a first mate that Benjamin had known for years. The risk certainly outweighed the reward. 
Mutineers who were caught were usually killed. Centuries earlier, Ferdinand Magellan, as a warning to other mutineers, had one attempted insurrectionist stabbed to death and another beheaded. Other captains throughout the years adopted Magellan's methods, and so as a result, mutiny was not something sailors considered lightly. More often than not, it was sparked by a brutal captain, unlivable conditions, lack of food, and so on. None of these things applied to the Mary Celeste. The American Merchant Navy immediately appealed the Admiralty Court's finding of mutiny. Captain Briggs was by all accounts a good, fair man, and he was well-liked by his men. No one who ever sailed with him complained about him or claimed he mistreated them in any way. Mary Celeste had recently been renovated, so conditions were excellent, and there had been plenty of food on board, which meant no rationing, so there was no reason for a mutiny. A mutiny couldn't even be blamed on sailors having too much to drink. It was a dry ship. The only alcohol on Mary Celeste was the crude alcohol in the hold. It was impossible to drink because to do so would cause severe stomach cramps, vomiting, and even blindness. So the finding of mutiny was withdrawn. And in March 1873, the Admiralty was forced to admit they had no solution to the mystery of Mary Celeste's vanished crew. It was the first time in the history that the court had failed to come to a definite conclusion over maritime law. The owners and crew of the Degrada were awarded one-fifth of the value of Mary Celeste as a salvage fee, and the ship was returned to James Winchester. He wasted no time in selling what everyone now believed was a cursed ship. In the years that followed, interest in the story of Mary Celeste faded, but it never went away. No one, from the Briggs family to the crew, were ever seen again. Stories often popped up in newspapers or magazines, though, claiming they'd solved the mystery. Even though no one on board the ship was ever found, so-called survivors frequently popped up in the Caribbean and South America. Conveniently, the names of these survivors had always been accidentally left off the ship's register and were never mentioned in the log, but, you know, they turned up anyway, with stories that ranged from the impossible to the ridiculous. There were no survivors. But, of course, there were the theories. Even though the Admiralty eventually ruled out murder and conspiracy, the suspicion of foul play always lingered. Insurance fraud on the part of the ship's owner was briefly suspected, largely because some newspapers claimed that Mary Celeste was heavily overinsured. She wasn't, and James Winchester was able to prove it. In 1931, an article in the Quarterly Review suggested that Captain Morehouse could have lain in wait for Mary Celeste, then lured Briggs and his crew aboard De Grata and killed them. This theory ignores the undisputed facts, though. DeGrada left New York eight days after Mary Celeste was a slower ship and would not have caught up to the other ship before she reached Gibraltar. It was also a theory that undeservedly demonized Captain Morehouse and his crew, even though the two ship's captains had been friends for years, which of course was the basis for another theory. This one claimed that the two captains and friends were partners in a conspiracy to share in the salvage money. 
but there's no evidence of anything like this either. If Briggs and Morehouse had been planning such a ruse, they would not have devised such an attention-drawing mystery. In addition, if Briggs had planned to permanently disappear, why would he leave his seven-year-old son, Arthur, behind? The boy had been staying with Benjamin's mother because the long voyage would have caused him to miss too much school. In 1925, historian John Gilbert Lockhart surmised that Benjamin, in a fit of religious mania, had slaughtered everyone on board and then killed himself. <laughs> in a later edition of his book, Lockhart, who had by then been spoken to by Briggs' descendants, apologized and withdrew this theory. What most could agree on was that to cause a veteran sea captain to abandon an apparently sound and seaworthy ship with ample provisions, something extraordinary and alarming must have taken place. One such alarming explanation may be that the ship was struck by a water spout, which is essentially a tornado, but over water instead of land. This could explain the damage done to the sails and the water found below decks. The low barometric pressure generated by the spout could have driven water from the bilges up into the pumps, leading the crew to assume the ship was taking on more water than she was and was in danger of sinking. There's also a theory that the crew may have spotted an iceberg in which Captain Briggs could have feared running into it with the ship, but it's unlikely an iceberg would have drifted that far south. If it had, other ships would have reported seeing it. It's also possible that Mary Celeste, while in calm water and without wind to fill its sails, could have drifted toward nearby reefs. The theory supposes that Benjamin, fearing a ship would run aground, launched the lifeboat in hopes of reaching land. The wind could have then picked up and blown Mary Celeste away from the reef, while the rising seas swamped and sank the small lifeboat, which was already in poor condition. The hole in this theory is that if the ship had stopped due to a lack of wind, all the sails would have been set to catch any available breeze, and yet the ship was found with many of its sails tightly furled. There does exist one possible explanation that's more feasible than others and takes into account everything that was discovered on the ship by the DeGrotic crew. There was no structural damage to Mary Celeste, and yet she had apparently been abandoned in a hurry. For this reason, it seems the evacuation was not carried out because of something that had already happened, but because of something they were afraid was going to happen. The only danger on board the vessel was her cargo. Captain Briggs had never carried crude alcohol before and was likely unfamiliar with its chemical reactions. He'd come from the cold weather of New York to the much warmer region of the Azores, and the barrels shaken by stormy weather may have started to leak fumes into the hold. It's possible that Benjamin feared that the vapors could either poison his family and the crew or that the barrels might explode. One of the barrels, it'll be remembered, was opened, probably during an inspection. If the inspection had taken place by candlelight, the open flame could have caused the fumes to burst into flame, which convinced the captain that the entire ship was in danger of being destroyed. Terrified for the safety of his men, not to mention his wife and daughter, he may have ordered everyone into the lifeboat. In all likelihood, he intended to stick close to the ship so that they could get back on if no explosion occurred, but... That would not have taken much wind to send Mary Celeste sailing away from the lifeboat, thus abandoning the crew at sea. 
The crew almost certainly would have tried to catch up with the ship, but rough seas may have prevented them from doing so when the crew and passengers of the Mary Celeste were lost forever. It's a theory that makes sense and has since been considered by historians and writers alike, but it's never been generally accepted. In fact, it receives little publicity at all. Why? Well, because sea monsters, time warps, and aliens are much more exciting than an ordinary yet fatal accident, as you're just about to find out. Writer of the strange Charles Fort suggested that the missing crew and passengers could have been whisked off the ship by what he called a selective force, which left the ship itself untouched. In 1926, Adam Bushi claimed that Mary Celeste had dematerialized while en route across the North Atlantic, but when it returned to solid form, the crew didn't return with it. Other weird stories emerged of paranormal portals, giant squids, kraken, time warps, abductions by aliens, and of course, my favorite bit of nonsense, the Bermuda Triangle. Wait a minute. You might be thinking, everyone knows the Bermuda Triangle is one of the greatest paranormal mysteries of all time. I can assure you, it's not. While this area is certainly the scene of some strange occurrences, there's nothing paranormal about it at all. In fact, after years of collecting stories of unsolved vanishings, it became readily apparent that the Triangle boasts no more disappearances than other parts of the world's oceans. The Bermuda Triangle, also known as the Devil's Triangle, is a region in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean in which a number of aircraft and surface vessels are alleged to have disappeared under mysterious circumstances that fall outside the boundaries of human error, piracy, equipment failure, or natural disasters. Popular culture has attributed some of these disappearances to the paranormal a suspension of the laws of physics or activity by extraterrestrial beings. But in many cases, this couldn't be further from the truth. Documentation shows that many of the incidents allegedly connected to the Bermuda Triangle have been inaccurately reported or have been embellished by the writers and paranormal TV hosts, which should not come as much of a shock. Of course, that's not to say there have not been strange disappearances in the area or that unsolved disappearances don't exist. It's just that the mythology surrounding this area is much greater than it deserves to be. The boundaries of the Bermuda Triangle are said to be from the Atlantic coast of Florida to San Juan, Puerto Rico and on to the mid-Atlantic island of Bermuda. Most of the alleged disappearances are concentrated along the southern boundary along the Bahamas and the Florida Straits. So just how dangerous is this area? Apparently not very. The area is one of the most heavily sailed shipping lanes in the world, with ships crossing through it daily, bound for ports in the Americas, Europe, and the Caribbean islands. Cruise ships are also plentiful, and pleasure craft rarely go back and forth between Florida and the islands. It's also a heavily flown route for commercial and private aircraft heading towards Florida, the Caribbean, and South America from points north. If this was some sort of mystery spot, wouldn't disappearances occur a lot more often? Well, you'd certainly think so. So how did such stories get started? 
Well, the seeds of the Bermuda Triangle legend were first planted by an Associated Press dispatch on September 16, 1950, in which reporter E.V. Jones took note of what he characterized as mysterious disappearances of ships and planes between the Florida coast and Bermuda. Two years later, in a Fate magazine article, George X. Sand wrote, quote, a series of strange marine disappearances, each leaving no trace whatsoever, that have taken place in the last few years in a watery triangle bounded roughly by Florida, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. M.K. Jessup picked up some of the stories for his 1955 book, The Case for the UFO, which suggested that aliens were responsible for the disappearances, an idea that was echoed by other writers. It was Vincent H. Gaddis who actually coined the catchphrase that entered popular culture when he wrote an article for the February 1964 issue of Argosy magazine called The Deadly Bermuda Triangle. Soon, nearly every new book on true mysteries included chapters on the Bermuda Triangle, and claims began to be made that the area was populated by an intelligent underwater civilization, which was stealing ships, planes, and people from our world. Well, the first book to be written about the Triangle was a self-published work called Limbo of the Lost by John Wallace Spencer. It was republished as a Bantam paperback in 1973 and attracted a huge audience, as did the 1970 documentary, The Devil's Triangle. Bermuda Triangle Fever peaked in 1974 with the publication of The Bermuda Triangle, a major bestseller by Charles Berlitz. Two other paperbacks, The Devil's Triangle by Richard Weiner and No Earthly Explanation by John Wallace Spencer, also racked up impressive sales. The heart of the Bermuda Triangle mystery seems to revolve around the alleged scores of vessels that had vanished in the region. Among the most notable was United States Navy Flight 19, a training flight of TBM Avenger bombers that went missing on December 5, 1945, while over the Atlantic. The squadron's flight path was scheduled to take them due east for 120 miles, north for 73 miles, and then back over a final 120-mile leg that would return them to the naval base. The flight, however, never returned. Now, the impression is given that the planes encountered unusual phenomena and anomalous compass readings, and that the flight took place on a calm day under the supervision of an experienced pilot, Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor. According to the intrigue is that the Navy's report of the accident was ascribed to, quote, causes or reasons unknown. Further adding to the mystery, a search and rescue Mariner aircraft with a 13-man crew was dispatched to aid the missing squadron, but the Mariner itself was never heard from again. Later, there was a report from a tanker cruising off the coast of Florida of a visible explosion about the time the Mariner would have been on patrol. While the basic facts of this version of the story are essentially accurate, there are a lot of important details missing. The weather was becoming stormy during the flight, and naval reports and written recordings of the conversations between Taylor and the other pilots of Flight 19 don't indicate magnetic problems or anything else unusual. That part of the story was invented to make things seem more mysterious and likely to link it with UFOs. Missing planes? Absolutely. Something paranormal, though? Probably not. In addition, there were ships that legitimately went missing in the region, 
like the USS Cyclops that disappeared in March of 1918 with 309 men on board after leaving Barbados. Official records blame storms or the fact that we were at war during the time and radio communications were spotty at best. Some ships that vanished at sea have literally been moved in the stories, sometimes hundreds of miles, so that it appeared that they disappeared in the triangle like the Patriot, which disappeared in 1812 with the daughter of Vice President Aaron Burr on board. The ship was actually sailing from South Carolina to New York, nowhere near the Bermuda Triangle, despite what some have claimed. It ends up in the stories anyway. Claims also say that the infamous schooner Carol A. Deering vanished in the Bermuda Triangle. It didn't. A simple check of records showed that it ran aground and was abandoned in North Carolina. On December 28, 1948, a Douglas DC-3 aircraft disappeared while on a flight from San Juan, Puerto Rico to Miami. No trace of the aircraft or the 32 people on board was ever found. From the documentation compiled by the Civil Aeronautics Board investigation, a possible key to the plane's disappearance was found, but of course, it's left out of what's written by those who pushed the myth of the Bermuda Triangle. The plane's batteries were inspected and found it to be low on charge, but ordered back into the plane without a recharge by the pilot while in San Juan. Whether this led to complete electrical failure will never be known, but it certainly offers a very real possibility for the disappearance of the plane that has nothing to do with aliens or mystery spots. SS Marine Sulphur Queen, an oil tanker converted to a sulphur carrier, was last heard from on February 4, 1963, with a crew of 39 near the Florida Keys. She was the first vessel mentioned in Vincent Gaddis's 1964 Argosy Magazine article, and he claimed that she, quote, sailed into the unknown. Of course, he left out the fact that a Coast Guard report not only documented the ship's history of poor maintenance, but declared that it was such an unseaworthy vessel that it should have never have left port. That's how they explained the sinking and disappearance. But other authors embellished the story even further, making it a part of triangle lore. It wasn't. One of the most famous incidents that allegedly occurred in the Bermuda Triangle took place in 1921, when the Japanese vessel Rafuku Maru went down with all hands after sending a distress signal that allegedly said, quote, danger like a dagger now come quick. It makes a great story, especially with that eerie last message. But in truth, the ship was nowhere near the Bermuda Triangle, nor was the word dagger a part of the ship's distress call. It was actually now very danger come quick. The ship left Boston for Hamburg, Germany on April 1921 and got caught in a severe storm and sank in the North Atlantic. And some ships that purportedly vanished into the Bermuda Triangle never existed at all like Ellen Austin, which allegedly vanished in 1881, but didn't. And then, of course, there's Mary Celeste, a real-life mystery about a ship that was found off the coast of Portugal, which the last time I looked at a map was nowhere close to the Bermuda Triangle. It's a spooky mystery on its own, which is likely how it got roped into the Bermuda Triangle mystery as writers tried to make the so-called mystery spot seem more credible. So as you can see, the scores of mysterious disappearances that have occurred in the Bermuda Triangle have actually been narrowed down to only a few. 
based on the sheer number of ships and planes that pass through the area without incident every day, there doesn't seem to be anything mysterious about this area at all. So why does it continue? Well, unfortunately, hardly any of the books or articles about the Bermuda Triangle that exist show much evidence of original research. A quick read makes it obvious that each of the chroniclers were just rewriting each other's work. If they'd done some research, they would have found that this manufacturing mystery was playing very fast and loose with the evidence. Weather records, reports of official investigators, newspaper accounts, and other sources show that the number of ships and aircraft reported missing in the area isn't any greater than any other part of the ocean. Also, in an area often hit by tropical storms, the number of disappearances that did occur wasn't numerous, unlikely, or remotely mysterious. Oddly, though, most of the Triangle writers fail to mention such storms. It also turns out that the number of disappearances is exaggerated by mistake, all because of that bad research. A boat listed as missing was reported, but its eventual return to port? Well, they forget to mention that. Again, some disappearances cited never occurred at all. For example, one plane crash was said to have taken place in 1937 off Daytona Beach, Florida, in front of hundreds of witnesses, but a check of the local papers? Yeah, didn't happen. Official sources also debunk many elements of the mystery. The legendary insurance company Lloyd's of London stated that its intelligence service could find no evidence to support the claim that the Bermuda Triangle has more losses than anywhere else. This finding was also upheld by the United States Coast Guard. Proponents of the Bermuda Triangle mystery, though, well, they refuse to be confused by the facts. And thanks to this, the region still pops up in supermarket tabloids, magazines, poorly researched books, and you guessed it, paranormal TV shows. Hopefully someday the Bermuda Triangle will take its place as nothing more than a footnote of things that we used to believe in when we were kids. But no matter what we say that didn't happen to the passengers and crew of Mary Celeste, the story of the ship, well, it's not quite over yet. After the court of inquiry was finished with her, James Winchester sold Mary Celeste as soon as she arrived back in New York. He sold her at a great loss. He wanted the ship off his hands. It was bad luck for Winchester, but the unluckiest person in the deal? Well, that was the man who owned her next. Mary Celeste's run of bad luck had started back when she was still known as Amazon, but no matter what her name was, that bad luck streak wasn't over yet. The new owner loaded the ship with a cargo of lumber and sent her to Central America. During a storm that occurred while en route, the deck cargo and a good amount of the ship's rigging was lost. The voyage turned out to be a complete and utter loss. On the return trip, carrying a load of horses and mules, most of the animals died in the cargo hold. A few days later, and you can't make this stuff up, the new owner died too. From that point on, Mary Celeste changed hands so quickly and so frequently that it became almost impossible to keep track of who owned her and when. She continued to sail up and down the American coastline, slowly falling apart. Then in 1884, she was purchased by an old seaman from Massachusetts named Gilman C. Parker. 
For most of his 61 years, Parker had dabbled in almost every kind of illegal activity on the sea except for outright piracy. And he probably thought about that one. He and some of his friends concocted a scheme to make some money off the notoriously unprofitable Mary Celeste. They loaded her with a cargo of junk worth nothing more than a few hundred dollars, but insured the cargo as being worth nearly 27000 After that, Captain Parker took the ship on her death voyage to the Caribbean. Off the coast of Haiti is a coral reef called Rochelet Bank, which had already proven fatal to ships over the years. Parker set a course for the reef, and the ship was grounded on the razor-like coral. With waves crashing around her, it began to settle. There was no immediate danger, and the crew had plenty of time to row the cargo ashore. When everything worthwhile had been salvaged, Parker ordered kerosene poured onto the decks, and then he lit a torch. Mary Celeste burst into flames, and by evening was nothing but a charred skeleton. Back in Boston, Parker and his associates filed their insurance claim, but the company was suspicious and dispatched detectives to question the crew. Well, the sailors, who weren't getting a share of the money, freely talked about what they'd seen. Soon after, Parker and his partners were in federal court, facing a charge of barity, an act of gross misconduct committed by a master or crew of a vessel which damages the vessel or its cargo. In those days, this was a hanging offense. Well, the jury was unable to reach a verdict in the case, though, and Parker and the other conspirators were set free. They never collected their claim, and the notoriety of the case destroyed their reputations. None of the men ever boarded a ship again. Eight months later, Gilman Parker died in poverty. One of his partners was confined to an insane asylum, and the other committed suicide. Even after she was destroyed, Mary Celeste, the most famous cursed ship in history was still bringing bad luck to anyone connected to her. Okay. Uh, you good to go? Yep, I'm ready. Alrighty. Thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call Gone. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Mr. Troy Taylor. What's up, dude? <laughs> what's, what's with the mister thing? <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm just I was yeah. very respectful. Just trying today. to feel things out, you know, just see yeah. what works. So I, I prefer to go by Captain, so you know, or something like that. So no, okay, right. we don't have no. To do that, so that's so funny. I didn't. I have. Skipper. I had no. I had no idea why, but now it kind of makes sense. But I uh, just really wanted to watch for the first time uh, Captain Phillips last night. Oh yeah, um, and I and I did, and now I'm like, well, duh. I've been thinking about ghost ships and stuff. Like, uh, <laughs> that totally makes sense. I knew you were watching Ghost Ship the other night after you uh, read the uh, the episode. So I did. Yes, I fell asleep to that. Uh, honestly. You can just just watch the opening scene, and then you don't really need to watch the rest. I mean, of the yeah, it's okay, but it's yeah, the, the opening, the the cold open on it is definitely the best part of the movie. So for sure, yeah, uh, it's cool as hell. Um, 
Oh, yeah, ships, stuff like that. Um, yeah, speaking of ships, I don't have a segue. What's going on with you? I, <laughs> yeah, I have no segue there either. I have not been on a ship lately uh, or anything like that, but nope, just working and getting ready for uh, Dead of Winter this weekend. So when people hear this, Dead of Winter will only be a few days away. It's Saturday, February 11th. So if you're in the Illinois, Missouri, downstate, St. Louis area, whatever, uh, come out. We've got a free event um, this Saturday starting at 10 o'clock at the Mineral Springs uh, in Alton. Uh, it is uh, it's our annual food drive. We started doing this back in 1999 and it gets bigger and bigger, mostly because of all the really great people who come and bring all kinds of stuff because the daytime event, as I said, it's free. It's got speakers, vendors room and a lot more. Cody and I are doing a live recording. Um, we're doing a theme story that goes along with the event. And since it's not part of this season shows, uh, you'll be able to hear it next week, uh, which will be Tuesday. Uh, Valentine's Day. Um, so Dead of Winter is completely free. All you have to do is bring a donation of a canned good or non-perishable item. Um, you know, canned goods, dry goods like mac and cheese, toilet paper, paper towel, soap, light bulbs, sanitary items, whatever. Um, anything that anybody can use at a food bank that they need around the house. Um, you know, by February, they're usually starting to get into trouble. Christmas has been over for a while. People don't start thinking about this kind of stuff. Um, you know, after Christmas is over, it seems like, and, and they need it. So this is something that we do every February to try to support the food bank. So um, you can check out details, uh, AmericanHauntings.net, or just come out to the Mineral Springs next Saturday. It runs from 10 to 4. Uh, like I said, it's it's free to, to come in. Um, you know, like I said, the, the vendors I know would love your support and things, but I think the food banks would love them even more. And you guys have been so great in the past. Yeah, so, and really every, every year, you know, it gets bigger and bigger. And I've, I said this the last few years, and I'll say it again this time. Um, if you do something like if you bring a ridiculous amount or something crazy, like if you do something super, super helpful for this event, like I will – then I'll buy you a shirt or a shot or sign something <laughs> or do I'll do something to like be like, hey, this is super cool. Thank yeah, you. So like yeah. come find me if you bring like a car or truck full of like stuff or something, <laughs> you know, or do something ridiculous. Um, because I would I would want to say my thanks. Um because yeah. this is like I said, this is the one time of the year. I'm not selfish. I do something nice for others. And so I really go all in. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so the episode that Cody and I are recording uh, will go up on Tuesday, February 14th, which of course is uh, the celebration of America's greatest massacre. Yeah. Oh, no, that that's not really what that's about, is it? It's Valentine's Day. Um, so that, we'll have it on that thing? day. And, you know, so if you hear it, if you hear it on Valentine's Day and you think, wow, I really screwed up this year. I did not do anything for my significant other. There might still be time for you to attend that weekend's event, uh, which yeah, is love, there. love Gone Wrong. Uh, which uh, is uh, the presentation that I do uh, or that I've started doing around Valentine's Day, which is, um, you know, wrong lovers, uh, murderous revenge, um, ghost stories, all connected to couples. Um, so it's going to be one of those nights where you bring your significant other and, um, you know, hear about how other people murdered their husbands, wives, et cetera, in bed or, you know, wherever. 
just sounds like a regular relationship. Those stories behind, I know. So um, we don't have many spots left. So honestly, if you hear it uh, before Valentine's Day, um, treat your treat your significant other because we're uh, about out of seats. So anyway, dinnerandspirits.com. Uh, check it out. That's my that's my one nod to Valentine's Day, which is the world's stupidest holiday, because if you don't love somebody the rest of the year, why is one day going to make a difference? So unless you're a greeting card company or a florist mm-hmm. in that case, I get it. Otherwise, yep. it's dumb. But I, uh, I, I love to, to celebrate it with horrible things. So I, I love it, too. And I do go to Troy's event sometimes. And I think this time I'm going to be in just a diaper with a bow and arrow and <laughs> trying to shoot people. Yeah. yeah just trying to yep. shoot people. Okay. And that'll be real, fun. Real arrows. Yeah. That'll be fun. So yeah. we'll uh, make sure we get photos of that for the website. So, and for the upcoming criminal case after that. Yeah. Well, that too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Oh, what else you got, man? Nothing. That's it for now. That's so it? Uh, everybody knows the conference is coming up. I'm not going to beat that one to death this week. Um, all I'll tell you is that if we had been in our old location, we'd already be sold out. So it's getting so, bigger and better. Yes. So it's going to be a great event this year. And if you miss it, you're going to hate yourself. I mean, I know you do already, but I mean, yes. people in general, I mean, right. I'm not counting you and I, we already know how we feel about it. Yeah, ourselves. other people but, might. They have, um, they you might, yes. Way. Other people who like themselves now will hate themselves if they don't come to the conference. So yes. anyway, leaving that alone, everybody who find it, they should come. Hell yeah. I actually I plugged, I plugged the event um, the other day. I was on a podcast called Eat, Slay, Live. I record oh, a podcast yeah. out, of, out of Bethalto, um, and that'll be out in a couple of weeks, but I plugged the hell out of the conference. So uh, check that out in a couple of weeks. Um, talk yeah, about the podcast I've got to do... I've got to do a radio show Wednesday night, which is the eighth, I think, out of St. Louis. I, oh, I yeah. don't know. I, I can't remember the details about it, but <laughs> it's, okay. it's something in the evening that's paranormal-ish. That's apparently something new. I don't know. Okay, so, so hey, turn on the radio. I said I would do it. Safe. Well, I'll post it on the web on the uh, on my Facebook page if I can figure it out. So I also have to do a, a website or a podcast on Tuesday night mm-hmm. um, that is a reunion of all the people that were the cast from the St. Francisville experiment. No, oh shit. I'm not kidding. Yeah. So for real, it's it's going to be the the me and Paul and the, the cast. So it, it should be interesting. So I, I don't know. It'll be nice to see them, if nothing else. So if you're not yeah. familiar with this, Google it because Troy hates talking about it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. Well, let's uh, dive into a listener review here. Oh, this sure. one's from uh, at Denny Josh and it's titled thank the podcast gods, which I think, um, Hey, we did this Troy and I, okay. So like, let's just leave, <laughs> let's yeah. leave him credit, credit where credit's due. Um, <laughs> this, the review is finally a podcast I can listen to for hours at a time. You guys are truly the best at what you do. Thanks so much for all things you do to make this podcast one of the best, if not the best. Mm, he um, hates so himself as well. So he does to um, torture himself that way. All right. So yeah, thank you so much, uh, Denny, Josh, Josh, Denny, what, whatever, um, for that review. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, again, we know you know sometimes not everybody listens on iTunes and stuff like that. It's just that's the place yeah, you can really leave reviews. It and that helps us a lot. It does. Yeah, so we appreciate it. Are you ready to uh, dive in? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Dive 
in uh, water. Yeah. Got it. It's Sorry. Took some, me a it's there. somewhere there. Yeah, I, I need a lifeboat after that one. Oh, hey, one with a bunch of holes in it. Uh, <laughs> December 1872. Um, Oliver DeVoe, is that how you'd say that? Yeah. Okay. First yeah. mate of the Dia Garcia? Degrada. Degrada. Oh, Degrada. Okay. Yeah. British ship on its way from New York to Gibraltar. Um, Captain is David Reed Morehouse. Where is Gibraltar? Is that like a Spain a, a thing? I, I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, the entrance to the Mediterranean. Uh, the okay. Rock of Gibraltar is that's where you enter the Mediterranean Ocean, so or sea. Okay, uh, so it's right off the Atlantic. Yes, yeah, Spain, everything is right there around it. Italy, everything is there. And um, and then, of course, the Mediterranean opens from there. And that was sort of a um, I, I headquarters, maybe is the best way to kind of describe it. Uh, but that's where the British Admiralty, you know, this is where they held their the Admiralty courts and anything that took place on the sea. This is where it was legally handled. Was OK. It so I've, I've heard, you know, I've always heard the Strait of Gibraltar, but I never thought about yeah. where yeah. is this place until this right, episode. Right, right, Yeah. Uh, so a Captain uh, David Re Morehouse and sees a ship steering toward them and eventually find out that it's the Mary, Mary Celeste, uh, Captain by Benjamin Spooner Briggs. And they decide to raise a flag, a blue and yellow flags raised. And it's a signal to kind of speak with other ships. And that's something I do find interesting, too, is like the uh, the significance of flags in uh, all the maritime. different meanings. Yeah. yeah well, and, and they couldn't back in those days. You know, it wasn't like you could get on the radio, right. call somebody up. So you had to have some way to signal them, you know, without like, you know, firing guns or, right. or anything, because that meant something else entirely. Uh -huh. uh, so, you you know, so they you know, put together this system of flags, you mm -hmm. know, what each one of them meant. And that the idea was to try to let them know that, hey, you know, we need to, we, we need, we're trying to get a hold of you. We want to talk to you. And which is essentially what they were doing. And then as they got closer, then the captain was able to get onto his, you know, speaking horn, uh, uh -huh. megaphone, a megaphone essentially, and start yelling over to the other ship. But right. uh, didn't do Did it. Did pirates back in the day ever actually raise a pirate flag? Um, not that's a really complicated question. And <laughs> actually, the really? 1870s was a little late for pirates, right? Uh, most right. of the piracy, uh, at least off the American coast, would have been quite a bit earlier than that. But most most pirate ships didn't actually fly the skull and crossbones. Yeah. Uh, usually, there might be just a black flag. Or there might be just a red flag, or they might fly red a flag. flag that was their own custom. She like Blackbeard, you know, he had his own flag, you know, with the skeleton and the heart on it. And so oh, yeah. it was all, you know, everybody kind of did their own thing. I, I think that, you know, the, the skull and the crossbones thing, while cool, mm -hmm. uh, is more of a product of, you know, pop culture than real life. Um, it's, it's a, piracy is a very complicated question it okay. really is just because there were so many people who were i mean they were pirates but yet they were pirates working for other people like there were pirates who like worked for the american government or the british mm -hmm. government and their job was to only plunder enemy ships well right. and that was great until they hadn't found a ships in a while and they just decided screw it 
you know, yeah. your ear looks like one that's got a lot of money. We don't care where it came from. And then they'd end up, you know, then they'd end up wanted for something that they'd given, been given permission to do. And right. Well, you said piracy you know, is too you, complicated to you, explain you, in a paragraph. You so. said like, you know, pirates are pretty much done by this point. And I wanted to say, because they'd all been hired by either government. Point, <laughs> you know, pretty pretty much. much to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, to be so politicians. Kind of. So. so there's like mercenaries kind of at that point, I guess. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, there was, yeah, there would have con- been contracts. There would have been some of that kind of thing. But as far as by the 1870s, most of the pirates had been, um, you know, they were either, you know, even even river pirates by that time were pretty much out of out of style, so to speak. They just weren't around much. Most of them had been eradicated by that time. You know, most of gotcha. the piracy problems, you know, until new things came along. You said you watch Captain Phillips. Well, they've got a pirate mm-hmm. problem on the West Coast of Africa, but it's a little different than the problems that we were having with pirates here in the 1700s. So, sure. Yeah, yeah they didn't, the pirates back then didn't have AK-47s. Well, well exactly, yeah. Uh, okay, so the ship, the Mary Celeste, uh, let's see, it's uh, there's a lot there's a lot of different places we can start here, but this ship yeah. had a long history and a uh, kind of a s- string of bad luck. Yeah, and it, and it really wasn't that old. I mean, the ship was only you know like twelve years old, but it had already been through a whole bunch of owners and a lot of bad luck. You know, there'd been several accidents. The first captain died forty eight hours you know after he was named captain of the ship. Um, you know, it 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 drove up onto another ship and when it was delivering lumber to London. Um, And then, of course, it ended up on a rocky shoreline and was abandoned and then somehow ended back up in New York again and and went on after all these repairs went up for sale at auction. And then it was purchased by James Winchester and his company, and they gave it a new name. And that was then when they turned things over to Captain Briggs, who was a, a really reputable knowledgeable veteran seaman who came from a family of, you know, ship captains and things. So here was a guy who knew what he was doing and they thought, well, you know, I know that the ship's had a lot of bad luck in the past, but it's going to be fine with Captain Briggs on board. No. Um, so, okay. So Mary Celeste, uh, do you know where that name came from? I do not. Um, I do not know. I should have looked that up. Thanks a lot. Fuck you. So damn. No, I'm just one kidding. part of the Cut research. You didn't damn do. it. No, oh, I love it. Fuck. No, no, I really, I don't know. I'm sorry. That's cool. Um, I, and I can't cut it out if you want. Um, so, but it's the, the ship's bought, like you said, J.H. Winchester and Co. Ben, okay, so with this crew, we have Benjamin Spooner Briggs, which I love Spooner as the middle. Name. I know, that's just, I know, that's right? just fun. Yeah. Um, Albert Albert Richardson's the first mate. Uh, Andrew Gilling is the second mate. Edward Head is a cook. And then four uh, German men that make up the rest of the crew that all seem to be good workers, but we just don't know too we much. We don't know about much about them. them. Right, right. So. And the kitty cat. I can't forget the cat. Yeah, um, the cat. The cat should count. So um, Benjamin is going to have his wife, Sarah, and daughter Sophie on uh, this trip, which being a kid, it'd be cool for like two seconds. And then I'd be like, yeah, well, I'm and so she just trip. turns two. I mean, how oh, oh, okay. could it be? I mean, she's only two, but even so. It's yeah, still be pretty boring. But, you know, he left his their son behind. I mean, Albert mm-hmm. stayed with family because he was we'd be gone and missed way too much school. Plus, he'd have been bored out of his mind. I keep yes. So that really would have been bad, at least with a two year old, you know, needed to be around mom, I think, was the deal there. So, yeah. So the voyage begins. They have a uh, 1701 barrels marked alcohol. 
about 36,000. Uh, Benjamin's nervous to haul this because he they couldn't drink it. It's a flammable thing. And he runs a dry ship, like you said, which right. I think is a great idea, but would yeah. piss me off. I'm yeah, sure well, I was, it, it would. It, I think it would with these guys that are on board, probably the four sailors, the four mm-hmm. German guys, probably more than anybody. I mean, the Albert Richardson knew that it was a dry ship. Uh, the cook probably uh, he's probably a drunk. So, uh, but <laughs> they got their drunk. hip flask. Oh, yeah, sure. uh, but you know, so uh, yeah, but this it's also like you know one of the deadliest cargoes that you can actually haul is this flammable alcohol is the worst thing except for coal and hay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the most dangerous stuff that you can have on board. So I'm sure he was nervous, especially since he'd never hauled it before. So. Yeah. Yeah. They almost immediately, uh, they take off on November 5th, um, the 5th of November. Um, yeah. They almost immediately drop anchor then right after Staten Island for two days because <laughs> it's raining so much. And so I lived in New York for a little bit. Going from Manhattan and then being stuck in Staten Island was like a nightmare. <laughs> no, <I'm sure>. um, <laughs> don't, don't get mad at me, you Staten Island. Just that. <laughs> Back to the Mary Celeste. So when they find it, they jump. Uh, they eventually get aboard. It's a ghost ship. All the cargo's there, but one of the barrels of crude alcohol had been opened, and it looks like they just kind of what they were raptured and just disappeared. Yeah, I mean that's what it air. looks like, right? They just everything was just left how it was, kind of messy, and otherwise just exactly how it was when somebody would have been on it. They're just I th- gone. People I are think gone. The big red flag to me, and the crazy thing is, like, if they left their tobacco, then you know. Right. Like right. they left. That was the, that was like a big thing too at the time. That was something that everyone kept pointing to. That mm-hmm. it must have been dire for them to leave behind their pipes and tobacco. All the other sailors. Ex- that's what they all said because that is like something you did not do. Right. The, so. Yeah, and that's nicotine fiends or whatever. <laughs> um, pretty much like if I leave my apartment and I realize I don't have my vape before I get to two seventy, I'll turn around and come back. <laughs> Um, the last entry in the ship's logs dated November 24th, uh, 10 days prior to them finding it. And it's 700 miles away. And so they mm-hmm. said it, it couldn't, they don't think it would drift that far by itself. Is that kind of like, well, must I, nobody, nobody knew they thought they think that it, it wouldn't have drifted quite that far for 10 days that they think there was still, they were still on board, but obviously preoccupied with something else. Mm. then they probably were on it longer than the ship's log made it appear. That was a guess, though. Nobody really knew. That was just a guess. So. Got it. So they bring both the ships to Gibraltar, and the, there's theories about the ship being damaged or mutiny tossed around, but the, uh, those those theories don't hold much water, Troy. That's all I'm going to Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> Captain's a decent man. I mean, they had food. The crew would have been risking a lot um, to pull a mutiny, uh, like death. Um, yeah, death for sure. So. Yes. So when you you talked about this a little bit um, and kind of how that sort of stuff got established, but after a while, when they would kill people for a mutiny, did they just hang them or did they like stab them? Like, they, well, uh, yeah, that was um, that was interesting because when I, I was digging, I'm like, how did this get started? When this did this become like a death sentence? Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, uh, Magellan was brutal yeah uh, but i think normally you were hanged and normally i think they brought you back to shore after the mutiny fails they'd lock you in the brig in chains and bring you back and i believe you were hanged for mutiny yeah. so i think that became a common thing i mean most of us have heard i mean the most famous mutiny of course is you know mutiny on the bounty you have with captain Bly and the the, the sailors who got on to pick island and that was a successful mutiny but um they weren't usually 
successful, but that's the one that most people have heard of. But um, because of the things that have happened with some of these, but and that was a case of where, as they pointed out, um, you know, you've got a captain who is just brutal and cruel. And this was they felt the only way to, you know, uh, fight back is to, against this guy because he outranked all of them, you know, or there's not enough food. That was another common thing that would cause mutinies. Um, you know, on a pirate ship, you uh, if somebody decided that they didn't want to be, they didn't want that captain in charge anymore, then someone had to challenge him. And if that was the case, then whoever the, the best man that won became the captain. And there's a, again, it's a very mm -hmm. complicated hierarchy there. But um, in cases like this, you know, um, they couldn't find any reason why this crew would want to mutiny against Captain Briggs because everybody liked him. I mean, he was a good guy, you know, was fair. There was plenty of food on board. So they knew they hadn't run out of food or anything like that. So that became yet another one of those things that the Admiralty just said, well, it must have been mutiny. They must have killed the captain and his family and took off. And um, people were up in arms about that. They were very unhappy with it. The uh, American Merchant Marine immediately filed a, uh, of, um, an appeal uh, because they just didn't think that was accurate. They didn't think it was true. Not only did it make Captain Briggs look bad, but these guys too, because if it had been proven in court that these guys had committed mutiny, then say the, the young guy who's got a wife, a newlywed waiting for him in Brooklyn, she wouldn't get any of his pension or any of his, anything that was still owed to him uh, where, you know, if something happened and they died and it was a terrible accident, of course she would, but in this case, she wouldn't have. So they were pretty unhappy. And for the first time ever, uh, the Admiralty, you know, reversed its verdict and said, fuck, we don't know. Yeah. We have no idea. So, yeah, I'm surprised that like an organization like that uh, would reverse it and not just be like, well, we're, we're case closed. We're yeah, done. Exactly. Yeah. But they uh, they actually did. There was just such blowback about the fact of blaming this on Captain Briggs that they just didn't, you know, it, it couldn't be true. Sure. Well, I, mean, I think that says a lot about from him. rumors and things, though, sure. claiming that he and Captain Morehouse had been plotting together to do this stuff, which just any any anything they could come up with you know yeah. uh, we, but i we, mean that was pretty lame you know yeah. so if if we pull this off we're gonna make hundreds of dollars yeah, like what right the yeah it makes no sense you know and, and the other thing was is that you know everybody was like well he left like five days after the mary celeste how was he supposed to catch him they weren't even going to the exact same place right and uh it, it's like it's not like they had radar or something mm -hmm. oh hey let me drop a pen where I'm at sure, in the yeah. ocean, you come find me. You know, it, it doesn't even make sense. So it was a fluke that he found that Captain Morehouse is the one, his ship is the one that ran across the Mary Celeste and the fact that these two guys were friends. That was just pure luck. I mean, you're in an open ocean. You've got no idea where other ships are. Uh, back in those days, I mean, it wasn't like you could send a signal again. We already talked about this. You know, it's not like, you know, years later when Titanic's going down, they know that the Carpathia is somewhere close by. It wasn't like that in 1872. You had no idea who was out there. Mm -hmm. And they just happened to run across what appeared to be a ghost ship. And it turned out to be someone they knew. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd be curious to know how many ships were around, you know, in that 10 days or whatever, because I think depending on that, 
I'm I might be a little suspicious to be like, oh, you just you happen to be the one to run. Sure. It. And I think that's probably why I got it started. But there probably were other ships who even saw the Mary Celeste, but had no idea if they saw it in the distance. How would you know? True. You know, and it had not been that long. I mean, you know, they said the last logbook was 10 days before, which is not a tremendous amount of time. And the sailors thought there might have been someone on the ship longer than that. So mm-hmm. You might be talking a week or less. So it wasn't like she was just free balling it that whole time. It was just for a few days. Um, And so, you know, people who went by the distance would have had no idea that there was no one on board the ship. That's a good point. Um, You were talking about the the pirate stuff earlier, too. And I was thinking about like walking the plank and all that. Um, (laughs) And uh, I was I remember reading about this mob story where they took this guy out into the water and they like chum the waters a whole bunch. And then they shot him through the cheek and tossed him in and just like get eaten by sharks. And I was like, God, the ocean's yeah. so scary. Oh, big fish. Um, do you have any books about pirates? Have you done that yet? Have I done that yet? No, not really. It's it's on my it's on my list. You know, I have this list uh-huh. of things that I've had a I've had a book that is about pirates and um seafaring things and stuff literally on my to-do list for at least 10 years no shit and i just haven't gotten to it yet so but i will eventually i still got i mean I'm, i'll never be able to retire so i've got plenty of time ahead of me so mm-hmm. just seems like <laughs> i like whenever you keep saying don't have time to dive into all of this i'm like that yeah. means troy's got a lot of info in there uh, I've been uh, thinking yeah. about it there is a lot in my in my head so. Yeah. So, OK, so one of the theories that actually um, does kind of hold a little uh, could merit some truth is perhaps that they smelled the alcohol fumes and were afraid that it might be poisoned or it might explode. He's got his family on board, the safety of the crew. And so they pile into a lifeboat, peace out and then get which a we know was away. a crappy lifeboat anyway. Sure. Because that was the only complaint that Captain Briggs had about the ship was that this lifeboat does not seem, you know, all that sturdy. And mm-hmm. could we get it replaced? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it just fell off the radar and right. never done. So we know they're in a probably semi-leaky, you know, lifeboat. And then um, I think it's a really big possibility that in rough water, they couldn't catch the ship. It blew off course and they couldn't keep up with it. And they just ended up being swallowed in a very, very large, vast ocean mm. in a tiny, tiny little boat, really far from land. And yeah. Mary Celeste sailed off on her own and the lifeboat just sunk eventually. You know, we'll never know what happened. I mean, we'll never know. But I think that that makes as much sense or more sense than probably anything else that I've ever heard. But yet that's the one that gets the least amount of traffic. Well, it's the least, it's the least fun one. It's just not exciting. It's much more exciting that it was pirates or mutiny or murder or a plot or a conspiracy or sea Mm. monsters or time warps or aliens. Yes. Let's, Um, let's, First of all, one thing is imagine that moment when you're just sitting in that lifeboat oh, and you and you know that the ship's too far. And you're just watching it go out in the distance yeah. like, oh, I know. Uh, It'd be like laying on a door in the cold North Atlantic and wondering why there isn't enough room for you. Yeah. You know? Tossing Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, oh my gosh, Troy, I have to send you this thing. Um, it was It's this kid and he's got like five or six parts to this. It's an Instagram thing and it's uh, playing life as a highway at inappropriate times. And <laughs> right after she lets Jack go, he started yeah. playing life as a highway. It's so <laughs> funny. So good. Did you see James Cameron just reenacted that thing scientifically to prove that Jack couldn't have gotten on the door and he turned it, it turned out that Jack could have fit on the door? It's that not a door. Happened. Correct. It's not even a door, I right? I thought it was a door. Well, I thought you, I thought you told me. Wood. I no, thought you told me it was something else. Oh, I think you know, I said it was a po- like a pocket door, like a big okay pocket door. But anyway, he James Cameron did this scientific study where he was going to shut everybody up forever. Mm-hmm. He said, "I'm going to prove that he could not have fit on the door," and it turns out he could have fit on the door. So he's had to take it all back. I mean, good naturedly, but. It is pretty funny, but that it, is amazing. look it up because it just happened. Uh, I just watched the video of it the other day. So it's pretty funny. So, That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, well, even if he could fit on the door, it's just like, it's I know crazy. it would have ruined the movie because, right. you know, so. Oh, that's that's awesome. Okay, Um, well, let's talk about some of this crazy shit real quick, just because I think it's really, really interesting, um, because I didn't know a lot of the things that you talked about until uh, I read this, and then I started messaging you about it, and I I (laughs) called this section the Bermuda bullshit. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you said that the, the Bermuda Triangle boasts no more disappearances than any parts of well, the world. Okay. Oceans. So, but let's back up because oh, the okay, reason okay. that I put this in here is because of all the crazy theories about mm-hmm. you know things that might have happened in the Mary Celeste, and that's not to say that I am a disbeliever in paranormal things. I'm not saying that nothing paranormal could ever happen, but mm-hmm. people just seem to get. You know, if they don't see an easy solution, I find that using the paranormal as the solution often is a, kind of a lame crutch. Yeah, religion. It's, yeah. you know, it's a, yeah, God works in mysterious ways. No, <laughs> no, I really don't think so. I think there's a point to this and you're missing it. But he has a plan. In this, in this case, I mean, you know, we've got giant squids and kraken and time warps and aliens. And then, of course, the Bermuda Triangle, which my my big point here, spoiler alert, this ship was nowhere near the Bermuda Triangle, and yet it has become part of the lore, mm-hmm. just like so many other things about the Bermuda Triangle, which is was invented out of thin air. It really, I mean, I I, I walk through it because I felt like this was a great place to talk about the Bermuda Triangle and all the things that are supposed to have happened there that didn't. You know, it is one of the most heavily trafficked pieces of ocean in the entire world with all the flights and the cruise ships and not to mention all the private boats that go through there every single day. The number of disappearances is minuscule. Sure. And then most of them don't even aren't even real. Right. Don't it didn't happen there didn't exist at all. You know, it got started because of Flight 19. That is literally it. And some guys writing for fucking men's magazines. How many times do we have to talk about men's magazines? Saga and Argosy and True and all that crazy stuff. Now, I know that today, I mean, I know that I introduced you to that because that's not something that you see much about in Mm -mm. your lifetime because, but when I was a kid and, and, you know, digging into stories like this, because I mean, I was fascinated with this stuff. That's they were using these things as sources, Argosy and Saga and True and things which are pretty much Maxim 
with like hunting or I don't, I don't even know how to even put it. See, even that, even okay. you're too young for Maxim. Even. Oh, I'm okay. I mean, okay. okay. Do you remember Maxim? Okay. So it's pretty much yes. Argosy and all this stuff was pretty much um, a combination of Playboy, Sports Illustrated, um, hunting magazines and girls gone wild. So that's just, pretty it's, much what it's they were dude stuff, man. Stuff. Yeah. They were dude stuff. They were the next step from like pulp magazines from the 1940s, which was not, you know, great, uh, you know, lots of stories and a lot of great authors came out of that stuff, but they're pulp magazines for a reason. There's a lot of garbage in there too. You mm-hmm. can go, Oh, but look at all the weird tales. Okay, sure. You got HP Lovecraft, but then you got a hundred other guys that couldn't write their way out of a wet paper bag. So it's, you know, and these things were like the next step. They were, you know, true romance confession magazines, um, murder magazines, like the, all those uh, the true crime confidential and stuff. And so this was like men's magazines where mm-hmm. you would have maybe some chicks in bikinis in one part. And then you'd have, you know, I hunted Bigfoot and things like that. And that's what these were. And so you've got guys who are like writing articles about the Bermuda Triangle. They're just trying to cook up something cool to talk about. Sure. And it, it got out of control in the 70s, man. I'm telling you, there were oh God, I still remember all this stuff being a kid, man. Hmm. All the books and the documentaries and things, and they would always dig up all this stuff. But you know, it's kind of like what I'm always telling people um, when they'll hear a, they'll hear a ghost story. And you know this, one of my favorite things to do is to debunk a story, not necessarily the haunting, because I can say, hey, they experienced something. Yep. But they didn't have access to historical records. They don't know who died there. They don't know whatever happened there. They have no clue because people just didn't have access to stuff like that back then. So that's why it used to be fun to be on the radio because you could say anything you wanted to. And before the Internet, no one could look it up. So you can say anything. But so and that's essentially what people did. They would make up a story that kind of fit the experience. And then how are you going to look that up? How do you fact check that? Well, you can't. You know, so people ran with this Bermuda Triangle stuff and it became a huge thing. I mean, it was just huge. And then as more time has gone on and we're able to go back and look at the stuff and look at it critically and look at the actual reports and look objectively at actual yeah. newspaper articles that no one, you know, that show that things didn't happen, didn't exist. But you know, as more time has gone on, we can look and see, well, this ship wasn't even in the Bermuda Triangle. That that's does nothing to do with it. Why is it being used as part of the story? You know, why is the Carol Deering? You now that showed up in North Carolina. It was sure it was an abandoned ghost ship, but it had anything to do with the Bermuda Triangle and uh, where, you know, um, oh gosh, the, the Cyclops. And the, I mean, it really, honestly, it was just Flight 19. And, and don't get me wrong that those ships, those planes did disappear. But that happens, especially back then, a lot. It still happened a lot. So did it seem weird that a whole bunch of them did? Sure. And then if we start building on top of it with all kinds of things we've made up, well, then that does make things really spooky. I mean, it's it's like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example for it. I love world building. And that's essentially what this is. It's like, okay, so let's use Stephen King as an example. And he decides to write a book. Salem's Lot, or or okay, better yet, he decides to write The Shining, and he creates an entire history for the hotel, in depth, using names, dates, who got killed when, everything around it. It's obviously it's a work of fiction, 
but he's he's built a world with this, just like the Dark Tower series. He has created Midworld with this. So essentially what someone did is used world building to build the Bermuda Triangle and turn it into a real thing. And enough people believe in it that it becomes a real thing, or at least you think it is, because we didn't know any different. In the 70s, in the 80s, we didn't know any different. For all we knew, every one of these stories was true, because as an 11-year-old kid, how am I going to check that out? I'm going to read it. I'm going to go, holy crap. You know, this is crazy. I'm never flying through the Bermuda Triangle. I remember being a kid being afraid of it. I'm seriously, <laughs> I, I would look out on the map and I'd see, I'd take a pen and I'd write where the triangle was. And I'm like, hey, we're going to go down to Florida this year. Oh, okay. Oh, but we boy. Stay on the West Coast, man. I don't want to take any chances. So, you know, um, I mean, it's the greatest X-Files episode ever. Is yeah. Bermuda, it's my favorite one of all time is the Bermuda Triangle one with the Nazis. That's the best, you know. So we had all these, you know, we had all of this, this history or we thought was history. And um, the fact that people still continue to keep it alive um, is sad, really, because mm-hmm. it's so easy to debunk. But it is fun. But I, I kind of like to think of it as something that we used to believe in when we were kids, you know. Uh, like unicorns, Santa Claus <laughs> dragons, you know, a Santa Claus. Yeah. It's, you know, it's fun, but you know, let's be real here. Um, so yeah, but the Mary Celeste was, um, was, was said to have, you know, sailed through the Bermuda triangle, sucked everybody off the ship, I guess. But uh, anyway, I, I thought that was a good spot to go on to a soapbox about the Bermuda triangle. Hell yeah. Hey, we were already at sea, and I don't think we're going to go to sea again through the entire rest of the season. So it seemed to be the right place for it. So. No, I, I love it. And the, the couple of remarks is like, I know that you said that the Mary Celeste didn't go through the Bermuda Triangle and that a lot of the, the famous cases of the Bermuda Triangle didn't happen in the Bermuda Triangle. And so, you know, that should kind of disprove some things. However, I've heard about it so many times, Troy, that I'm going to disregard your facts because See? I've heard about it a lot. I know. I know. And that's what people do. It's exactly and, what happens. And I know like and totally like if you hear that those stories, you know, back in the day before the Internet and stuff, what are you going to do? But the thing that pisses me off now is people will say something to me, will tell me like, hey, that thing you're t- like, you're wrong. And I'm like, well, Google it. And they're like, no, I don't need to Google it. I'm like, we can solve this right now. We can <laughs> oh we, we have the information. We can figure this out. And people won't do it. Oh, I know. Or you send them to Snopes and they'll go, oh, no, no, that's a that's Mm-mm. a left wing. Yeah, oh, come media. on, man. It's, a, it's not, you yeah. know, it's not anything. Just look it up, man. Uh, I know uh, that is tough. And it's it's one of those things. Don't confuse me with facts, man. What's wrong with you? Oh, don't let truth get in the way of a good story. Or well, that, exactly. <laughs> that is exactly right. So uh, it, like I said, it's fun. But, you know, if you want to be real and people want they expect us to tell them real stories. So I'm trying to do that. And yep. um, I, uh, I, I, I love that this fit into this story and I'm sure someone will be mad at me about it, but um, oh, look Troy, I've heard about this thing a billion <laughs> times. How could it not? I know. How could it not be real? I know the last chapters of the Mary Celeste. So James Winchester sells the Mary Celeste asap he's like get out yeah, yeah. Of here. Uh, i'm done with this <laughs> done yeah. with this uh the new owner loads the ship with lumber for central america and loses most of it on the way and then uh horses and mules on the way back a few days later the new owner died too 
which, which hey, you know, I know, right? The ship changes hands a bunch more. And then in 1884, Gilman C. Parker purchases it essentially just for insurance fraud. Yeah. It was a scam. Yeah, it was just an insurance fraud scam. That's all it was. So, but he figured, hey, I've got this ship. It's a bad luck ship anyway. Nobody's going to miss it. And whatever happens, everyone will believe it because it's, you know, it's cursed. That's you not know? the worst so idea, but he sh- that's not the worst idea, but he should have just paid off the rest of the crew. To like, I know that was the problem. See, but that's what always happens. If you don't, if everybody doesn't get a taste, somebody's going to get mad and they're going to screw over your deal. I that's would. It works. You know, that's how yeah. it works. Fuck so. you. Pay me is what I say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, a lot of criminals are not smart. Um, <laughs> Gilman eventually uh, dies in poverty eight months later. One of his partners goes to a uh, psych ward and another commits suicide. And thus ends the, the reign of uh, some <laughs> Mary Celeste. Mary Celeste. Good I'm God. guessing, is it is it uh, anything you can see any remnants of or is it all gone on that? No, reason? no, there's nothing to see. There's nothing to see. If there's any pieces of it left, no, I, I just don't see how there could be. Yeah. Not for real. But but watch there there might be a piece of it in the raffle this year at the conference. Ooh, I'm, just, I'm joking. Uh, just damn joking. it! Come on. <laughs> well, just kidding. On that note, I. But when I start a sideshow, there will be. Oh, just yeah. so you know. Sure. It'll be Mary Celeste one day, and then the next day it'll be from a different ship. And yeah, yeah. The Titanic. Just, we just keep changing things around. So yeah. yeah. Uh, well, on that sad note, um, I wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Patreon supporters and subscribers. So yes. thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, shout out to Rhonda for supporting the show. And um, we've been rocking and rolling with this season for this uh, st- story season, Fred. Yeah, the, the new. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if I call it a season either. That's mm-hmm. a good that's a good thing. So we, we do have a an alternate uh, podcast that we do just for our Patreon people. And um, on the off weeks. Uh, on the off weeks and it is um this this particular season is called um come prepared to stay forever and it is the story of bell gunnis and after the last episode there was one comment on the thing on the post that we put up about it and it was amy and she'll know who it is when i went to it, it she was it was just a comment like my god that was gross uh-huh. <laughs> it's really it's, it's gotten to the really nasty um dismemberment uh decomposition part of the story so i think i, I, think I said it that. is nearing the end but it is uh it's still rolling so in, in the comment or in the description of the episode i think i said things are about to get hot and heavy or something <laughs> yeah when uh, the fire started yeah the fire and then everybody that's overweight being mistaken for oh well that, <laughs> that's not good either yeah, yeah. so but yeah we um we we started this is actually our second um our second full length podcast story um we we did one other one the moonlight murder before this and now it's bell gunnis and then when this is over we'll be starting another one so if you want to hear a different podcast you know separate from our regular one on the in between weeks uh you just need to sign up for our patreon yeah um it's um it's just you go to patreon.com slash american hauntings and you can get signed up there's all kinds of different levels you can get stuff in the mail you can get shirts you can get all kinds of stuff but always you get discounts and things on uh, on merchandise or whatever but um i think that the the podcast series kind of really i mean i put you put through your paces 
on this last one because it has sound effects Ugh. and things too. We do a lot. There's Hours. there's acting. Okay, I wouldn't call it acting. There's accents. bad voice acting, um, and uh, by me with various accents, which I really should have chose more wisely before I did a story about Norwegians, but I did not. Uh, but at least um, they're white. But we do have a lot of podcast uh, special effects and things. So Cody sent me a, a screenshot of all the wave files from like this yeah. one mass thing that I asked him to do. Could you put in this, 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 and this? And he's like, I'm going to kill you. I'm it, going to kill you. So yes, but it was a, it's a fun, it's, it's a fun show to do. It's a fun show, hopefully to listen to, but anyway, uh, well enough of that, but well, I think, if you uh, want to check it out, go check it out because uh, we are having a good time with it over there. Yeah. And I think, uh, uh, you know, when opportunities come up, I think I'll, I'll sprinkle in some, uh, some random episodes that aren't, you know, the story just to kind yeah. of like get people different things. I get sure. to, um, see a lot of like press screeners for horror movies yeah, and things true. so i could yeah. put out like i put out some reviews and stuff back in the day but we'll change yeah. things up or if you're one of the people that listens to the podcast but doesn't like the conversation part or doesn't like me then you'd love the <laughs> patreon stuff because it's just it's, troy it's just me yeah yeah do any story and i mean that like, i mean that sincerely though like if you could get just that um if if you want more troy um yeah patreon.com slash american hauntings but right now it is time for our ghostwriter segment so if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre you can email us at american hauntings podcast at gmail.com i do read all of the emails uh don't respond to every single one um if it's mean uh just let i want you know I, I don't care and uh it didn't, <laughs> didn't make an impact on my day <laughs> but this one's nice this one comes to us from kimberly and it's the, the title is good evening troy and cody uh, it says, I actually got to meet you both at the 2021 conference in Alton. Cody, I was one of the five sisters that lived in the haunted house we were telling you about. Because, you know, at the conference, I take yes. people's ghost yes. stories and things yeah. like that and turn them into content. And so I just want to uh, let you both know I love the podcast and cannot wait for a new season. It was fantastic meeting you both. So I remember these sisters. I don't necessarily remember Kimberly specifically which one she was. Um, mm -hmm. But this this group of sisters, they were so sweet and so awesome and so like close and they came up and told us about um or told me i believe at least about the hauntings um that they experienced while they were growing up all together and how they corroborated yeah. each other's stories as kids <laughs> and stuff yeah. and how they freak each other out and it was so fun they were and they loved the conference they were so happy to be there cool. uh, it was amazing meeting you all so thank you so much kimberly for writing in i really appreciate it that's all i have troy what you got okay. that's it that's it for me so um leave us a review on itunes that cody uh, mentioned earlier, that is the place that people see it, and that's the place that will help us. Um, we appreciate you listening and sharing it with your friends and reviewing us on iTunes, and we will look forward to seeing you this Saturday if you're in the area at the Mineral Springs uh, for Dead of Winter. We uh, we we love that. We really count on it. So, and um, just so you know, if you are purchasing anything from the website uh, AmericanHauntings.net through our online store, um, you can get a discount on anything just as being a podcast listener. Uh, just use the word podcast as a discount code. I had somebody asking me about, did we have any discounts for something the other day? And I said, well, if you listen to the podcast, you know, mm -hmm. and I actually I said it in a very nice way, right. but listen to the podcast and you know. <laughs> 
Well, do you remember being in New Orleans and having uh, Sam and others ask us all these questions? And we're like, listen to the fucking podcast. Why didn't you listen to the podcast? We did an entire season on New Orleans. Yeah. Why did you not listen? So yeah. it's like, no, yeah. I'm not going to not going to no. tell you now. Hey, you got to go listen. So, yeah. Um, and also I adopted that idea, too. So if you if you are on um, American Hauntings Clothing dot com, which is where I sell all the T-shirts, you can also use the discount code podcast uh, for, for a discount as Excellent. well, because I know there was some confusion with that. And finally, I was like, yeah, why don't I just put this on? Yeah, here? we've got a lot of um, a lot of designs that are retired designs and things on there that mm-hmm. we've used, plus new stuff Cody's come up with uh, a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, the hoodies are awesome yeah um, and and they're great them. like i have some they're of them really um, nice and they yeah, really hold up so yeah like yeah. megan has a couple too and they still yeah. like after a bunch of washes look yep. great and they're yep. holding the design so yeah yeah um awesome okay well this episode of the american hauntings podcast was written by troy taylor and it was produced and painstakingly edited because of technical <laughs> difficulties by me cody beck if you enjoyed the show uh, oh god read. yeah you guys listen it's gonna be i i have apologized Ooh. to cody repeatedly well uh, i mean i meant today well but... i didn't even mean today i meant when i was recording the monologue i know it was long but oh i'm done with i that, don't know though. what my problem was i was really off and i i don't think i've been that irritated with myself working on one of these in a long time but i was not having a good time the cuss words he came yeah, up with. Yeah, it was not good. So it's anyway, amazing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think I'm going to design a Patreon tier just for people that pay <laughs> enough so to people hear. can hear the outtakes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, um, God. Okay. Like, hey, if you enjoyed the cleaned up show, uh, leave <laughs> us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street. And follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or literally anywhere you listen to your favorite yeah. podcast. Um, Pandora, uh, Amazon. Pandora. Yeah, oh, I think like, I asked you about this before. You I did, yeah. That was still a real thing. It's a thing. So it used to be. I just didn't know it was anymore. Apparently, well, we get some listens awesome. on what they call wearables, which I'm guessing is an Apple Watch. What? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, whatever. Cool. Whatever. Yeah, yeah um, whatever. Yeah, check out the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, not TikTok. I don't know why. Yes, in. TikTok. Oh, you can find. Oh, yeah. Troy on TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. Okay. I have TikTok. That's amazing. Sorry. I thought that was a joke the first time. Um, <laughs> oh, and anywhere else that you waste hours every day uh, when you're supposed to be working or studying, <laughs> we promise that we we are much more entertaining. We than are more entertaining than things. studying or working, but that's yep. probably about it. But still, and unless you, know. you run a putt. Unless you're watching Skinamarink. Then I can tell you for a fact we're more entertaining than that fucking the dude. The funny thing is, <laughs> this is like it's the new Mandy to me. Well, before don't tell you, me you watched it and you were blown away by it because you're lying. The funny you thing lying, Troy, is so. that you you told me your thoughts on it, but before that, um, I had seen some people like, tweeting about it, and because of who they are and how much they praised it, I said this is going to be pretentious bullshit. Oh, it was. It is. It is. It is a. It is an art school film project mm-hmm. it's we terrible. get it you've seen movies before. yeah cool. i mean my quote in my review was if it's like watching paint dry but only if the paint is on the ceiling or the floor because that's where the camera is the entire time i cannot believe that movie is an hour and 40 minutes and i sat through every excruciating minute of it damn oh god i hated it i hated yeah. it so yeah. much Tell us how you really feel. Also, check out Troy on Letterboxd. He's got some great Yeah, it's the new, I'm serious. It's the new Mandy. No one liked that movie. I don't care what you say. You did not like it. It's terrible. This movie, no one could possibly like this movie. There's just no way. Mm. There's just no way. If you like any kind of decent movie at all, 
then if you, if you like watching paint dry, then you maybe you'll like it. But I'm serious, it is so boring and it is so pointless and so pretentious. Oh God, anyway, sorry. Okay, I'm yeah, so let's, sorry, let's, I just hijacked your thing. And you're getting me your... all worked up. I should yeah, not let's... have brought it up, it's my fault. Jeez. It's like getting so. a toddler worked up right before bed. Just like, <laughs> yeah, not a good sure idea. Is, man. Uh, we're this, just about to quit. Now I'm going to go yell at the cat. That's what I mean. So, yeah, right I'm before bed. Go tell the cat how much I hated this movie. So, uh, Did you see, uh, uh, did you see Knock at the Cabin yet? Not yet. Okay, no, we'll, talk, we'll, we'll talk about it once you have. Um, okay. I read okay. the book. Oh, the book's fantastic. I love Paul. Uh, the guy that wrote the book's fantastic. But you would have I, read the book. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's a great book, man. It really is. It, I page turner, but I have not seen the movie yet. But mm. I've heard change a bit so i don't know that oh, but oh yeah la one last thing i will plug though is um i read the that short story the boogeyman um yes. from the stephen king book mm -hmm. what was it called again? night shift the night shift. night shift yeah, yeah. so I, I got night shift i read that story it is creepy as hell i love i know that movie or that story scared the shit out of me when i was a kid i yeah. mean i i read it i think i started that was the first stephen king book i ever read wasn't it his, his, his first, first one I ever bought? Of, it's his first. Yeah, it was the first collection stories. of short stories, and it was the first one I'd ever bought. And I had then I went to the library, I think, and got like Salem's Lot and Shining and stuff. But that was the first one I had read, and I mean, it had a lot of good stories in it. But that story, oh my god, it haunted me for years. No after. shit. I for for the longest time, I made sure that my closet door was closed all the way every night and if yeah. i came into my room and it was open just like it says in the story just a crack yeah oh no oh no 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 how no. old how old were you how old were you uh, i was probably i think i was maybe 11 or 12. oh whatever. perfect age to be terrified by that man. shit yeah oh, god um if there are other gems in that book too please let me know because i'm gonna oh, check yeah. them out if you remember um, yeah, I will. I will. There's some good stories in there. There's some really good stories in there. Um, awesome. Yeah, there's some good stuff. So I love the beginning, the opening story, the Jerusalem's Lot story. That's what Chapel Weight is based on. Okay. That I just that came out last yeah. summer that I really liked. I just um, jumped straight to Boogeyman. Oh, yeah. That's what that's based on. And it's like the um, it's like the origins of Salem's Lot of the original town. Mm the horror that was behind it. It doesn't have anything to do with vampires. They That was for the series, which is still good. Yeah. But it's a good story. So. I think you can also, you can also tell that it's um, Stephen King's first collection of short stories by all the racial slurs that are in there. Oh the gosh, yeah, it's, uh, well, it was, you know, we're talking a lot of like early, uh, 80s early 70s. 70s and, yeah. and if you look at the copyright credits, everything was printed in like men's magazines. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I forget the names of some of them, but they're, I mean, like jugs and, you know, I mean, there's yeah, some real gallery and things. <laughs> they were all like, you know, porn rags, right. but that's, they were paying him, you know, and yeah, fuck he yeah. was feeding his family. So who cares? But yeah. yeah, there's some, there's some pretty rough stuff in that first collection for sure. I bet. <laughs> yeah. Different yeah. time, different time. Different time. Uh, doesn't mean it's okay, but different time. Okay, well, yeah. thanks for listening. Uh, we couldn't and definitely wouldn't, uh, you know, actually this has been kind of fun today so i might do it we if you probably don't listen, would but, do it yeah yeah without you but hey until next time goodbye so long so long see you later see you later oh right i just gotta combine a bunch of files cut out i some know stuff. sorry that dude none of it's your fault i just i gotta i would want to listen back and see is it recording what i hear is it recording what you hear yeah.